All right, everyone, we're talking about travel plans in the age of COVID. No, just kidding. <laughs> so we're going to do some quick introductions with our awesome guests today. We're going to go reverse order. We're going to go with Mimi, Ben, and then Ken. Mimi, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray. I'm calling in from New Jersey, northern New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And uh, I think we'll be talking about uh, the uh, new contract with workers in the organization of the future. So looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Super, super important topic. Um, let's go to Ben. Where are you calling in from? What are you talking about today? Yeah, I'm calling from Tel Aviv, from Israel. Uh, I'm the CEO of a tech company called Gloat. And today we're going to talk about, uh, yeah, our uh, main product, which is the internal talent marketplace and what we are doing to large companies. Wow, we got a theme going on here. Ken, what are we talking about today? Where are you calling in from? So I'm calling in from London. Uh, we're talking about anything you want to talk about, but I could talk about a book mm -hmm. I published called Framers uh, and about the importance of mental models and the limitations of artificial intelligence. Oh, this is going to be all important. We're going to put all this together. We're going to roll it all up. Uh, you are watching episode 247 of Disrupt TV, sponsored by Robots and Pencils. We thank them. And Elle, please do our countdown. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the author of a new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. Uh, he is a regular television and business uh, technology news contributor. You can see him on Fox Business News, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you. I'm here with my awesome co-host. Everybody knows him, Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. I have to get a copy of that book. I'm tracking it down. <laughs> Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting or keynoting or leading events at Salesforce and Salesforce Plus, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet and often about this show. But it's not about us. It's about our awesome guest. Who do we have today? We have an amazing guest, someone I've been following on Twitter and learning from for years. Ken Kukier is an award-winning journalist, book author, and keynote speaker. He's a senior editor at The Economist, and he's a fellow at Oxford Set Business School researching artificial intelligence. Ken is the co-author of Framers on Ooh. mental models and earlier big data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think an international bestseller translated to over 20 languages and sold over 1 million copies. Uh, Ted's uh, TED talk on data and AI titled Big Data is Better Data, which is a look at machine learning and how human knowledge is evolving, is approaching 2 million views. It's an amazing TED talk. Go watch it. Ken is uh, active with many charities. He's on board directors of the Open String Foundation, which provides classical instruments to, to children in poverty, and is a trustee of the Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. You can follow Ken on Twitter at K-N-C-U-K-I-E-R, a must follow. Welcome, Ken, to the Shrub TV. Thank you very much. It's really generous. Thank you, sir. An amazing book. 
All right. If you're thinking about mental models, if you're trying to figure out what's going on, we do this all the time. And you know what? Like we don't do a good job of it because we never really put a framing around framing. And that's what you did. So let's talk about framing, how it works, you know, why it's so important. Right. And how do we actually, I don't know, think a few steps ahead. Absolutely. I mean, mental models are absolutely essential. And as you said, we're always in one. We're always thinking about, you know, the game of life, two steps ahead, thinking, well, what do I do? But really, do we actually take a moment to think about, well, how do I think about things? And of course, we're in a world in which we've got so many challenges and so many problems. And the same thinking that got us into this jam is not going to be the ones to get us out. So we have to change the way that we think. So I and my two co-authors wrote a book all about framing the importance of mental models. But the key thing is this, that in the world of artificial intelligence, when the machine will make so many decisions for us, and in fact make better decisions than us because artificial intelligence will be disruptive, transformative, and good, still there's something important about the way that humans conceptualize the world that will be vital to preserve and in fact to enhance. So we need to get better at framing. In the book, Ken, you write, to frame is to make a mental model that enables us to see patterns predict how things will unfold and understand new situations. Can you give us an example of, of, of framing? Sure. Well, it'll be really easy if you think about it in terms of a business um, example, particularly for the audience that we have. So think about the world of 2007, 2008, when Nokia saw mobile communications, they saw it as a telecom company and they mm -hmm. framed it as a telecom world, in which what you do is you're trying to get the cheapest phone as possible the smallest phone as possible, and you as the carrier determine all the features that it would be would be in it, and you try to make it very simplified for the for the user. That was the telephone model, and it also has to be incredibly reliable, like the five nines, ninety nine point nine 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 reliability, which comes from the telecom world. Apple, Steve Jobs had a different view. They framed the device differently. They framed it under the computing model and under the mm -hmm. computing frame. What they want, they did away with all of those aspects of mobile communications. Suddenly the device was very expensive. The device was larger and heavier. People were upset with it. Um, it of course would be extensible through software, yet it would crash and still have problems, but that was fine. Of course, the computing frame was better for the needs of people, whereas the previous frame of the telecom frame wasn't right for mobile phones at the same time. Great, smart executives looking at the exact same market framed the issue differently, therefore came up with different options, made different decisions, had different outcomes. It's you, amazing you, because cover of Forbes in 2007 with Nokia, can anyone displace the king of cell phones? To think that reframing completely shifted the market is, is just an incredible example of the power of reframing. And, yeah. and it's not, go, sorry, Ray, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, please. I was gonna say, it's, not all, it's also not obvious, right, uh, mm -hmm. at the time that that was the right answer. I actually had, an, I confess this, I'm so embarrassed, but it's true. I, was, I had an interview with the CEO of Nokia at the time. And at the end of the interview, you know, as you're packing up, he asks, he leans in, he says, what do you think of the, of the iPhone? It hadn't been launched yet. We didn't know what it was going to be, but we knew it was coming down the pike. He said, what do you think of the, the iPhone? And I said, look, um, Steve Jobs comes from the computing industry and you launch products and they don't work and then you fix it. 
but consumers are not going to tolerate that with a mobile phone. They're going to want it to work, and they're they're, putting, they're innovating with so and many a five hundred dollar price point. Yeah. Of course, exactly. Yeah. A touch, a, a touch screen, one that would have to turn with you. They're they're combining so There's many no different innovations. Exactly, they were combining. So I look at him, you know, with this, the, the the certainty of a journalist. You get a little bit older, you realize you don't know everything. But at the time, I didn't realize that. And of course, I did. I was the fount of all knowledge. So I look at him with great certainty and I say, this is going to be Steve Jobs' Waterloo. <laughs> so I was, just, I was just so certain that this was going to be, it was going to blow up and they, it would be like the new Coke and the classic Coke where they'd have to sort of backtrack. They'd have to fix it. They'd have to have a make culpa. Too many technologies launching for the first time to go out at the scale, at the volumes that it was. Because of course, the volumes of the mobile phone industry and of the computing industry were vastly different. You had you know, hundreds of millions when it came to mobile phones and you didn't have that at Apple at the time. I was completely wrong. But of course, that's why Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. And that's why I have to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> but, but hey, you're, you're basically making the case here for, for diversity of thought, right? I mean, coming at it from different angles, changing your mental models, thinking about those framing. And, and a lot of organizations, you know, they, they think the same way. It's very, very hard for it, right? So, so what, what does it take to be a good framer? I mean, is it different perspectives? Is it like bringing out left, left brain, right brain person together? Is it like having an ethnographer hang out with a, you know, engineer i mean like what does it take because this doesn't look like it's an easy job either that's absolutely right and it actually requires a lot of care it's not obvious that you can bring people together the critical thing is that you do want that cognitive diversity you want if you'll cognitive foraging you want an institution as well as individuals that actively look out for other people and seek new experiences and seek new ideas However, what a lot of organizations do is they take the first step in, but not the second. And by that, I mean, mm. they're willing to sort of bring together a diverse group of people who think differently, but that creates friction and that's yes. not easy to manage, mm. but we must manage it. The point is that we can't say, oh, uh, it's really uncomfortable and therefore it'd be a lot, it's better to sort of to not have that conflict and not have that clash of ideas and better for all of us to agree. And if you bottle it down or tamp it down, it doesn't work. What you really need to do is embrace that friction and have a culture that accepts that there's going to be a clash, that it is going to be tense. It's not going to be easy, but it's the right thing to do that we trust the process. So this tolerance, right? This is such an important piece. Tolerance versus diversity or the balance of tolerance and diversity. A lot of organizations aren't getting it right. I mean, across the board. Um, and it's different. If you're executing, it's very different than when you're creating and designing. Do you see those differences as well? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, the, the, the tolerance is important. Diversity is important. If you will, there's a term for it, and that is pluralism. It's not simply that we have different views. It's that we allow those different views to coexist. It's not that we're all going to try to agree on one single view. And this is different from the message that we usually get. Often we're hearing, oh, we all need to coalesce. We all need to agree in order to, to move forward. We need to cooperate by sort of seeing globally a consensus. Well, our book is different. It says that we're not going to reach a consensus, nor should that be the goal. In fact, if you have a consensus, it might be the wrong consensus, but also it won't allow for the, the fresh flow of new ideas. So, so don't think strive for consensus. Exactly. Precisely. Don't strive. In fact, we have in our book, we have a nice little vignette about the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and John F. Kennedy, which mm -hmm. sort of the idea of groupthink. 
into play for the very reason that we need to think in a much more elastic way than we have before. And organizations can do better at it by having, if you will, archetypes. You want to have the court jester, which we talk about in the book, as an yep. archetype of someone who can speak truth to the king. Yeah, in the book, you, you talk about vigilance. We must remain on guard not to cede our power. You talk about continuous learning and the need for a wide variety of frames crucial for progress. You talk about constraints. Vision needs to be bounded to be effective. Counterfactuals, causality. Wh which one of these elements do you, you think is critically important in terms of becoming a, a, a solid uh, framer? So glad you asked it. Without a doubt, it is counterfactuals. I've actually applied counterfactuals. that. Own, yeah, I know apply that in my own life and sort of in work, but in all things that I do. Once you have a term for it and once you see it as a process, you can actually work with it in a way that before it was sort of intuitive, but in the background, now it's front and center and becomes more effective. The idea of thinking in counterfactuals, in playing the game of life a couple of ticks ahead and asking yourself, what if? What are the second order effects? Um, how would it be different if I imagine it differently? How would I see the world differently, see different options, make different decisions, get different and better outcomes by doing so? A lot of organizations do that. Great, high performance athletes have visualizations and, and executive coaches tell high performance executives to sort of be to, to visualize and have creative visualizations for how things might unfold. But when you take it seriously and apply it, a lot of things open up. You automatically sort of feel more experienced because you've done something 30 times before, 300 times before, rather than a sort of one shot moment. In the book, I think you used global warming or the narrative around uh, rising temperatures and carbon dioxide and counterfactuals in terms of absence of humans producing or being the result of, of can you quickly give us an overview of that, that example? I thought it was very powerful. Yeah, thank you. I you know it, it was. I was. We we're really pleased with it, particularly because we were able to vaunt two women who are heroes in climate science. Yeah, right. One, most importantly, I didn't know that until I read your book. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, thank you. So Eunice Foote is the person who, in the mid 1800s, a female scientist. She didn't get credit for it until really in the last two or three years, when she was rediscovered almost by accident. People think it was John Tyndale who first created the causal model between you know heating up. Uh, carbon, uh, carbon, di carbon dioxide, and therefore warming the planet. Uh, but it wasn't him. It was actually years before him, this woman, Eunice Foote, who was an American uh, and, and has a great history as well as being a suffragette in, for women's rights in the mid-1800s. Now, that was a causal model of global warming. That simply says that if you burn uh, fossil fuels and carbon goes into the atmosphere, it will warm up. But how do you actually know that humans were responsible for it. That's a different question. You only have one Earth, so you, can, you can't run an experiment to find out are humans responsible for it. What you need, however, is a model that presumes an Earth with humans, as we have, and one, importantly, without humans. To do that, you need a model of counterfactuals, a counterfactual statistical model. That's very different. The sciences took a long time to get to this idea of the counterfactual, but now you can run a, a comparison where keeping everything the same, was humans responsible for global warming? And the person who did that was a woman. It, her name was Inez Fung. She was part of the famous Jim Hansen team at NASA in the 1980s. And it was she's the only, she's the second author on the Hansen paper, which was the major climate model in 1986 that basically told the world on the front pages of all the newspapers that climate change is happening, it's real, 
it looks pretty grim. We need to do something about it. Now, sadly, they have the models, but they didn't have the political backing. So we still have to fight that fight. But it was Ines Fung, who's still alive in her probably about 80s at Berkeley, who uh, who did all that work. Fascinating story. Wow. You know, let's let's take this back to the Apple example, Nokia versus Apple. Right. You take it even further. You talk about how Spotify reframed the concept of music as an experience and crushed Apple in its own space. I, mean, I thought that was awesome. Like you one up yourself in the middle of this thing. <laughs> Completely. And who would have thought? But of course, if you treat music as a product, you produce one set of, you know, user interfaces and one set of expectations and one economic model. But if you treat it as an experience, it looks like something different. And Apple has been slow to that. And of course, they're, they're trying to catch up. But Spotify was there first with streaming, but also understanding that they're not selling a product, they're selling an experience. And that was pretty decisive. It's interesting that Apple shouldn't actually have moved in that direction, probably because of internal economic interests, not to, because of course they are very experiential in all their other domains of, of, of software and hardware. Yeah, that framing of products to services to experiences to outcomes. I mean, those are different mental frames that people can take something as an offering and walk them through. So, Absolutely. I mean, some great so, examples in your book. Last night, you know, at you know 10 o'clock my time, I'm sitting there live watching AI Day uh, Tesla AI day with uh, Elon Musk and his chief engineers for visioning and dojo and software hardware data scientist folks. And I'm an electrical engineer. I took as many math courses uh, as you can imagine and wrote software for years. And for the first couple of hours, I'm completely lost uh, with, with these incredible deep experts talking about, you know, smart visioning and, and real-time rendering. And, and I really enjoyed the last part with the Q&A with the panel, but all along I'm thinking, is there anything that AI can't do? And I know we're talking about narrow AI, but the demonstrations were so rich and so smart. And, and of course, then the, you know, the humanoid is introduced <laughs> at the end and, uh, and, you know, and, and realize, you know, Tesla is a robotics company, but you talk about framers and the human advantage in the age of technology. And you say, this is something that AI can't do. Can you, or framing, reframing, can you talk about your point of view in terms of what is that advantage that we have? Because to me, honestly, you can after watching AI Day, I'm thinking in 10 years from now, there's not much that these algorithms aren't going to be able to do. I got to get a Dojo D1 chip, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, stack of them, stack yeah. them. Stack, we need stacks, we need stacks. The, the book makes an interesting contribution, but one that doesn't fit into the natural compartments that most people use looking at this. If you ask people around the world, either you've got the AI optimists who say, this is great, there's gonna be no problem and AI can do everything. And there's those people who say AI is absolutely terrible and has all of these shortcomings. We don't believe in either camp. We think that we believe actually maybe closer to the AI optimists to say that actually AI is extraordinary. AI will be transformative and can do so much that we should be so happy about. And in fact, AI importantly will make decisions better than human beings. Mm. You know, of course, there's going to be wobbles to get there, as the, there always will be with all technologies. But in fact, axiomatically, that should be right. On the other hand, there are limitations to AI that people aren't seeing. And those limitations are that it can't generate a mental model. When AI is actually designed, it has, a, if you will, a mental model baked into it. And if you look at all of the great successes in AI, whether it's AlphaGo or AlphaFold or, you know, eSports and, and Dota 2 from OpenAI, 
you can see that in fact the programmers had to imbue it with representations or abstractions of the world, which is what a mental model is, which is a frame is, right? And those representations and abstractions of the world, they can actually change, right? And that's important. You might need to adjust the frame or you might need to reframe altogether to actually solve a problem. Now, what is a frame? It, it has both causality, counterfactuals, and constraints into it. Those are the three, the very three things that AI simply cannot do on its own and needs a human being behind it to actually tinker in the background, right? That the, the dirty little secret about deep learning is it requires a lot of adjusting, right? All the AI engineers know that, but the media that I belong to, the cast I belong to, often doesn't, or it simplifies that. But the key thing is that we're still going to need human beings to conceptualize the world, to frame it, and to actually reframe it where it needs to be reframed. I love that. I love that. I'm telling you, every executive needs to read the, read this book. It's it's just it's really brilliant, and the way no pun intended, the way you framed the narrative is just uh, it's 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 easy to understand. You don't have to you know study AI research to understand the implications. And uh, anyway, th it's it's a great great book. Congratulations. The person who framed framing, Gent Kokieri, senior editor for The Economist, Twitter at K-N-C-U-K-I-E-R. Get the book. It is one of my favorite books right now uh, and is on my shelf. So take care. Thank you, so for, thank you for being here. Thank you for staying late. And it's time to hit the bar in London. Oh, wait, you can't do that. Pub. <laughs> 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 yes. Thank you, Ken. Exactly. Thank you so much. The pubs. Bye. So thank you. Wow. Uh, this extraordinary amount of nuggets of wisdom in the book. So uh, it's one of my... One of my two most recommended books of uh, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm just surrounded by best-selling authors and extraordinary CEOs. Our next guest, I need to, Ben co-founder, CEO of Gloat. Ben, uh, in his role, uh, oversees Gloat's growth strategy and has taken an understanding for business agility uh, as well as a mission to improve workplace culture from within. What an important topic right now. Uh, prior to founding Gloat, Ben spent six years at IBM in series of roles ranging from the core development team of the R&D division for global customer facing responsibilities. Ben's passion for talent and career development drives from his early background as a member of the Israeli Defense Forces, IDF. Ben demonstrated extraordinary emotional intelligence and was asked to focus on unlocking the work capacity and skills of his squadron. Ben's time in the military and IBM inspired him to support the discovery of internal talent and the maturation of career opportunities in lockstep with the future of work leading to the creation of his company, Gloat. You can follow Ben on Twitter at REU, V-E-N-I-Ben, B-E-N. Welcome, Ben, to the Shrug TV. Thanks for having me. I saw. I still don't don't have a book, by the way, yet. But uh, but by the way, that that sounds like a great book that I'm going to buy. So uh, thank you for, <laughs> for that. Uh, ben, our promise is, as advice. soon as you write the book, we have you back on the we show. We'll get to you talk back on the it. show. Yeah, we'll get you back on the show. <laughs> Boom. So, Boom. what we really want exactly. to know is like which, yeah, which IDF unit were you in? Six six nine, Maja. I'm just kidding. Anyways, um, what is this internal talent marketplace? Let's start there. I mean, lots of people are yeah. looking into. I mean, dynamic skills, continuous learning, right? All these things are popping up. People can't find enough tech skills. In the US, we have 9 million you know, unemployed individuals, 9.5 million open jobs. Definitely yeah. talks to a huge you know, tech skill deficit, along with, of course, you know, some other factors in the background. But the question is, right, why are people doubling down now, internal talent marketplaces? 
Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's uh, that's really really true because we see that we see how they are doubling down. They they started to realize actually I guess a, a bit before the COVID and and COVID like really accelerate that. How is it important for an organization to deal with the internal talent? And what we have created at Gloat, we created an internal talent marketplace. And if you think about that, we are turning the organization into an agile. a uh, live dynamic talent marketplace uh, that in one hand we are onboarding employees and on the other hand we are onboarding the hiring managers so we let them both find each other in a way they we think they should do it today imagine every aspect to their career within the company we are trying to help them uh, uh, to develop it could be part time projects it could be full time job mm. transition it could be mentoring it could be shadowing everything that relates to their career we are trying to help them uh, to pursue within the organization. Ben, we just spent time talking to Ken about uh, machine learning and AI and its impact on, 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 on future of business, life, work, and the importance of framing, um, uh, not a pessimistic or optimistic, but perhaps a realistic view of the changing nature of work and the cognitive download from humans to software and machines creating a yeah. future of work that's going to be algorithms and and people coexisting so can you talk about the role of ai uh, that plays in 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 supporting and expediting the upskilling and reskilling of the workplace last night elon musk said you know manual labor will no longer be uh, uh, part of our future of work and a lot of this work in, in terms of manual labor or dangerous work repetitive work is ultimately going to be transitioning to machines yeah. so again talk to us about how do we reskill upskill yeah. our employees knowing that we're in the age of algorithms yeah yeah that's that's a great great topic and it's also really relevant to what we are doing and if you look and 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 for my perspective the ai has a significant part in the in in the success of of the talent marketplace and all the skills and reskills and if you think about what ai help us to do it help us to be smart in that way it help us to build dynamic skills that we we are able to identify a career path for every one of the employees within the company so without ai it would be very hard for human in, in uh, to actually do that so what we are what what ai actually help us is to build a to help us to build a dynamic marketplace where every one of the employees that uses our product we are able to look on their career history and and look about and look on on their skills and help them to plan uh, their next step and not even their immediate next step it could be the, the even the step after that and and the step after uh, after that as well and if i'm looking about ai it it first of all help us to build the fundamental infrastructures for skills because skills it's a, such a big topic and i know right that you uh, that you also wrote a report on that on how important that that topic is and if you think think about how much it's it's developed and evolving so you you must have a uh, um, an, an algorithm that know how to uh, to think about skills in a dynamic way because one skill could be could be something uh, 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 different in in the next few few years so you need to understand how you can uh, how you can evolve that so ai as as a significant part and if you look about 
what we are doing, we are targeting large companies, like companies with more than 5K employees, 10K employees. And we are building a marketplace that only built with AI that help both sides of the uh, of the employees, employees and hiring managers find each other within the company. So the only way we were able to do that is using AI. But on the other hand, we should still uh, 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 still work to make sure we are eliminating bias. We are still have human interaction in 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 that process that help us to actually eliminate that and making sure we are doing that on the right way. Because if you are not building AI, I think, in, on the right way, and that's a key thing to understand, uh, it could lead to, uh, uh, to, to bad results. So that's something we are really focusing on because it's really important for us as a, as a philosophy for the company. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we see a lot of interest in level one AI ethics. That's something that keeps popping up. I mean, it's, uh, it's important for organizations, you know, to think about how they can, you know, get this in place, you know, having transparency, making sure it's explainable, making sure you can reverse it, making yep. sure you can train it, making sure there's human led, right? If you start a process with a human end with a human, at least you catch something we might normally not yep. have seen. You guys are doing a lot around uh, training against bias. Like what are some of those things that are important that people should be thinking about, uh, especially internal marketplaces, right? Internal marketplaces, the good news is the data is at least closed. You know what it is, right? And and you can, see what, <laughs> you can actually hopefully see some kind of level of inherent bias and understand what that yeah. bias is before it gets there so yeah 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 and, and it actually goes to the fundamentals of of uh, of 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 the reason i i started the company and and actually connected to to the new world that, that we are currently at if you think about about post-covid they're like hybrid approach people are working from home hmm. and I'm, I'm looking on my experience at the company as 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 I, in, in ibm and i remember myself after four or five years i wanted to see what will be next in my career and looking back then back then i had only two options to explore outside the company or to explore in, in internally and what is interesting that exploring outside of the company was much more easier for me than exploring internally and 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 why it's so interesting because even when i wanted to see what would be next in my career within the company i was able to do that because i'm such of i'm such of a people person so i knew some people they helped me and and i i, I met people at the elevator and I, and i spoke to them and if if I'm looking on the on the fundamentals and the philosophy of what we are trying to do with the talent marketplace, we are trying to democratize that process. Not only the five percent of the organization who knows the right yep. people who are not now able to go to to the next career step. Now it's democratized to the entire organization, so everyone can play in. in in that part, especially when now people are working from home, even the human interaction is not really is not as as it used to be. So now you need even to to uh, to help more on bridging that gap, helping people to meet within the organization. So if you think about that, that's what we are trying to do. So that's the first uh, 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 um, uh, reason why we why we are seeing uh, such a diversity and and such a diversity in, in DNI and how our product is actually supporting that because it lets the entire organization play in that part. I'm impressed, Ben, because at the beginning of the conversation, you re-emphasized the word skill or skills. And uh, I find that uh, uh, many organizations haven't taken advantage of the power of skills mapping 
to open roles. You know, it, the transferability or mobility of a skill to me uh, is more impactful than job titles. Um, when, when you're looking for a job title or a potential career based on a role inside of a line of business, like an IBM with hundreds of thousands of employees, very mature business, it's very difficult to know, like, I'm a great writer. Guess what? Writing skill is uh, good in marketing, in engineering, in, in exactly. commerce, in, in sales. Uh, I, I can, I'm a good speaker. I, I, you know, I'm great with math. Um, so being able to map skills to open roles and then creating perhaps a heat map that shows these are the most, these are the five skills we're looking for, not experience, not title, not line of business jargon. These are the skills we're looking yeah. for. So I'm interested in your algorithm. How does GLOAT look at mapping the a group of skills that an individual has to open and create that connection in a way that's smart and, and not, not only career pathing individuals, but making sure that the individual is going to be successful in his or her new role. Yeah. We want the NDA version. That's tough. That's tough. Okay. Really, give us the broad version. Give us the broad version. It's really, it's really, it's really in the, in the core of what, of, of what we are doing. But, but, but that's, that's, that's actually really a, a really smart question because I think in the past when people are looking for someone, they were, they thought they are looking for a title and they thought about that, that, that that's the way we, they, they, they look on someone. Yeah, product manager, and, you know, product marketing. And I'm a person who is not ever in product marketing, but I'm a great writer. I'm a critical thinker. I'm creative. I can build consensus, but I'm in sales. So a salesperson would never think product marketing. And yet he or she could be amazing uh, given the skills that are required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, we, we turn this into that philosophy. When we come to organization, we are actually helping them using our job architecture. When we are actually show them how we are building that skills map. And we are telling them, mm. forget about the titles, forget about that. And, and I can even tell you how we are actually introduced that to companies. We, we told them, use our product, use our talent marketplace in the beginning only for part-time projects. And I want to tell you what happened. Organization, think about large organization like Unilever, Schneider Electric, Seagate, like really large organization. We told them now, everyone within the company can open any part-time project they want, and they can find talent within the organization that can actually help them to complete that part-time project. The results were amazing. Awesome. Unilever did more than half a million of, of unlocking hours using our product. Uh, Seagate uh, gave us a number after four months, $1.4 million using, wow. using only projects they they wow. they how they utilize their, their employees and if i will take that topic and connect it to what you ask so we told them forget about titles you you look for skills you look for experiences and you let people within the company to actually do projects with with, with you and what happened we saw so many cross functional assignments we saw more than 40% people from marketing helping products, people from development helping, helping, helping marketing. We saw so many cross-functional uh, assignments because people were not looking only for the titles. They're looking for the set of skills, the experiences that are relevant for, uh, for, for someone. And, 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 you know, it's, uh, I, I'm shocked from, from, from that every time, but we use Gloat, we use internal talent marketplace within our company. We are, we are around 200 uh, 
employees, employees, not the type of companies that we are working with. And, 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 and if you think about that, now I have the visibility on our entire organization. I know what exactly uh, skills and experiences are, are my employees within the company have. And every time there is a part-time project, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. We wanted to record um, uh, a marketing video and we wanted someone to give us a voiceover. And we found that the, one of the employees as a hobby He's doing voiceovers in on 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 other uh, <laughs> freelancer freelancer products that you, that you 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 have outside, and it was crazy. We found that using our product. So that's something when you think about that, but think about in scale. Think about a company like Unilever, few few hundred thousand size of em employees. They probably have every skill and every experiences in the world within the workforce. So now they just need a, a way for them to utilize that. They need to wait for them Amazing. to unlock to unlock the, the potential that, they, that their employees have within the organization. And if, we, if you look on the other side, how it puts the employees on the driver's seat. <clears throat> now the employees is in, in own control of their yeah. career. They can develop themselves. They can do projects. They can get new skills, new experiences. So it's very important for them, for their career development. So suddenly they don't really, uh, no, it's not really important for them to look outside of, of the company because they see the company, uh, see them because they see the company is important for them to progress their career within the company. So that's, that's some of, 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 of the thing that we are, that we are doing on, on that specific topic. Yes. I have sorry, a quick, fo quick follow-up question. Last week we had a general manager of the Linux foundation on our show. And he talked about the importance wow. of universal credentials. Do you envision at some point I have my Gloat mobile app and all of my skills are perhaps on a ledger where it's a trusted, verified that I do voiceovers, I'm a journalist, I'm a you know marketeer. And so you have mobility of your skills and credentials uh, in a trusted framework where other employers can potentially see and, and quickly vet that this candidate has the right skills I need. Um, uh, so mobility of credentials, uh, is, is that something GLOAT helps uh, uh, employees do so that they can be marketable broadly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I'll, I'll answer this, this question in from, from two sides. First of all, skills assessment and verification and certification is something which is probably it's 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 very Im important thing but currently it's not really solved why is that because there are products that saying let's test the employees let's do tests for them and see if they can cert certificate the skill what what we see it's very easy to uh, to overcome this test it's it's not really well, not really accurate what we believe is the future of assessment and, and certification is to be able to get people around you that actually can tell a bit about that skill that you've done together with them on a specific project okay. or you work together with them. So you have, you have many, many people together with you are helping you to certificate uh, and, and to give you some, uh, some assessment on, on, on one specific skill. So, so that's an, on, on, on the first topic. Second, I do... I really agree that the future says that we let people actually to take this assessment and credentials and to let them actually 
to uh, to mobilize between between companies. And yeah. I can give you even even tell you a sneak peek that I can that I can share. We breaking already news, from breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah, we already have companies, non-competent companies, that are actually thinking of and 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 using our and going to use our product to actually help them to take employees from two companies and actually switch them for part-time nice. projects nice. and then get That's them back. Amazing. And That's if you amazing. think what will happen to an employee that will go to another, the same department, but different company, it will learn more things. They will have, will, like yeah. it will be more creative. It will get more experience. Yeah. Then it will go to his, his own company. So it's a win-win for both companies as you think about that process. So that's the first step. And the second step could be like helping people actually moving between you hear, companies. You're here first yeah, on Disrupt TV, breaking like news. I'm doing I my like voice. It. Talent marketplace <laughs> ecosystems. Talent you know, marketplace exactly. ecosystems across non-competitors, uh, creating a new <laughs> type of workforce. You know, we always wonder why LinkedIn would never just go out and certify. I mean, if they just the API for, did you work here? Did you have this school? Like, did you go to this school? Did you have this skill, right? Between employers, they could create this massive API marketplace, uh, but they, they they don't. But real quick, hey, how did you meet Amitai and Danny? Let's get to the origin story and congratulations on the 57 million in Series C funding in June. Uh, tell us real quick, you've yeah. got about 30 seconds. So. How do I meet? Okay, so Amichai was a, a colleague of mine in IBM. He was responsible for the architecture. I like fell in love. He's one of the smartest people that I ever know, and he's the CTO in in the company. And Danny, actually, it's a funny story. He was my boss in in the army, and we switched roles. He said it's better. It's better that way. So now it's uh, uh, I think that is uh, 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 the CM the CMO in 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 the companies, and uh, obviously a very talented. Uh, person. Thank so, but thanks. That uh, is amazing. Thanks Congratulations. You got a great team there. We're looking forward to seeing you succeed. So, we are here Thank with you. Ben Ruveni, co founder and CEO of Gloat. And we're using the radio voice Twitter at Ruveni Ben. So, follow <laughs> him in there at Twitter. If you need a voiceover artist, sign me up too. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks a lot for being <laughs> here. Ben, great Great work. You. Congratulations. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Dialing in all the way from Tel Aviv. Uh, I love that, you know, that military discipline obviously will help him be a, uh, be a successful CEO. And speaking of successful CEOs, our, our final guest uh, today is Mimi Brooks, um, CEO mm -hmm. of Logical Design Solutions, LDS, a consulting firm that envisions and designs enterprise digital solutions. Since founding the company in 1990, Mimi has led LDS to become a recognized brand among technology-focused management consultancies and trusted partners to Fortune 500 business clients. Mimi's a former AT&T executive with a career spanning focusing on organizational design, technology-driven business transformation, and research on changing behaviors of business users. All of these have never been more important than right now. <laughs> Mimi's recognized as an industry thought leader, author on topics such as future of work, organizational transformation, digital business strategy, and frequently presents to Fortune 500 leadership teams and industry conference events. You can follow Mimi on Twitter at BrooksLDS, B-R-O-O-K-S-L-D-S. Welcome, Mimi, to Disrupt TV. Bala, thank you so much. And I just want to say, before we get started, Ray, this is the first time I've been here. I love this format. <laughs> In my next job, I want to come back as Vala. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I am writing Ray do. Wong's coattail for years. There's no I better job it. than being Robin to Batman. Ray. I am not no, kidding no. you. You are 
he's just having too much fun, Val. Did you see him? He's just like totally into it. Uh, it's Absolutely. great. And I want to do one other plug. My own personal copy. I'm not kidding. I brought them. Give me a minute. I do. Oh, I doubles. Got them both. Oh, and let my me God. say, I'm not kidding you, Val. When you said um, every executive should have this book, I'm going to tell you, I sent it. You can see I've got it all marked up. Book here, dog eared. Um, I sent it to six of Ken my- Ken is still watching. He is like smiling, like- I'm telling you, Ken is a super brain. Like there are people I that are- Like Ray is a big brain. Ken is a super <laughs> brain. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, Ken knows. And you know what, I just have to tell you, you'll just crack up with this story. So um, when my marketing group asked me if I wanted to do the show, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty busy in August. Let's like put it off. And they said, that's fine. But, you know, if you come in in August, you get to speak with Ken. I go, OK, I'll move my calendar for that. <laughs> that I will do. I'll be there. That so much awesome. fun. So awesome. I sent, um, Val, I just have to tell you. So I sent his book to um, six of my um, CEO clients. And, Ray, I marked up different pa um, passages of the book for each person because their situations are different you yeah. know and wrote little notes like this one you got to read this one you got to read and uh i love it so what uh, ken doesn't know is i'm one of the small group of people at salesforce that decides or provides input who we want to bring as speakers for future events yeah uh he's on my a list i'm telling uh, you so, yeah, he's going to be getting contacted by my company yeah yeah I love it. Love it. What one of yeah. the best business book, one of my top 10 favorite business books, sincerely. So nevertheless, thank you so much for having me. But I just have to tell you what's too funny. And then my last coincidence is just yesterday I'm with a client and uh, they asked me to come in and uh, take a look at it and do an evaluation of Ben's product. We are super connectors. Ben, if you're still watching, turn on your video. This is awesome. We'll pop you in here. Like, how could we possibly tie an how episode better be? than this? I mean, great production work by our producer, Ben. Elder. I mean, <laughs> so when he came on, when Ben came on, I didn't know his name. I didn't know the CEO. And so, Val, when you introduce him, you know, CEO of Gloat, I go, oh, my God, Gloat? He's a CEO of Gloat? <laughs> Just did that evaluation yesterday. Well, here's the final cap. Mimi, congratulations for Thank being on you. the BT150, uh, the 2022 so nice. list. We'll see you at Constellation Connected Enterprise. And so, so we really forward. appreciate this. You've been talking a lot about the organization, the future. Mm -hmm. You caught the eyes of a, our BT150 selection committee for that um, and really trying to understand how the organizations of the future are built. We're yeah. definitely going to have to talk in the green room with Ken and Ben later. Uh, but, you know, Absolutely. let's start here. What's happening? What is this org of the future? I mean, this is the perfect starting point for, you know, what's going on. So, so give us an insight as to where you see this happening and, of course, what your clients are doing. You know, there's there's no more exciting time, like you said, you know, than now to be doing this, Ray. But the thing that's interesting to me is that not surprisingly that you know, as goes the business, eventually goes the organization, even if there are stubborn behaviors and structures that ultimately need to change. And so what I'm seeing, Ray, is as our companies are becoming open constellation marketplaces and <laughs> ecosystems, right, so are organizations starting to adopt some of these languages and ideas. Now, it's still it's still a bit immature. You know, I'm not saying that there isn't a long way to go. But the things that are resonating, Ray, are things like uh, purpose, leading with purpose, mm. uh, culture as the glue, you know, ideas like um, recognizing that we need to value all of our constituents, stakeholder capitalism, 
all constituents matter. And, you know, Ray, as uh, as Val said, I've been doing this for a while and workers who have always been our focus have been second class citizens to customers and others for a long time. And so for them to finally kind of take their seat at the table, the center table where they belong, where, you know, customers are customer centric in the marketplace and we're worker centric, you know, in the workplace, it's a uh, it's about time. So I think that um, as corporations are recognizing the changing value creation in the marketplace, you know, we're recognizing that organizations need to adopt some of these same concepts and bring them into the organization ecosystem itself. I would say, Ray, that the one of the most stubborn things that we still haven't quite cracked is the old systems and structures of organizations. So, you know, we're going to have to do something about, about those hierarchies that are getting to be, you know, kind of anti-patterns, if you will, to the, uh, to the workplace of the future. So those are some of the things I'm seeing. What, what do you think? No, it's very consistent in what I'm seeing. I have the good fortune of engaging with executives on a daily basis, senior executives that are leading army of men and women across multiple sectors. A common theme uh, for all of them is how much concerned they are with onboarding. Uh, some of them said we've hired tens, hundreds of folks we've never met. And their direct reports haven't met the, the t single contributors and it's cascading effect. So yeah. this employee experience in this decentralized, for much of the time, digital only construct is creating uh, a, 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 perhaps a trust deficit, a sense of belonging deficit. Yeah. So cracks in the culture are more revealed. So can you talk about how do you guide your clients in this digital only or digital first world that we've been in since February of last year and the impact it has on the employee experience? So um, it's a great question, Vala. So, you know, most of our clients are not digital first organizations. You know, most of our clients are large legacy global businesses, you know, who have found themselves in many cases being a little late to the party late to the party from a marketplace perspective, and certainly late in, you know, creating some of the ideas for the workforce of the future. And I think that's driving some of the um, things that you're seeing, Val. For example, um, you know, I think that even though we've seen this train coming and it was accelerated, you know, um, with COVID, no doubt, um, we've done not a great job in many businesses of planning for and really envisioning the workforce of the future. Who are they? What's the work of tomorrow? What's human work in that future state? You know, um, how do we develop, you know, human centric work really? And someone's got to do all that work design, right? Someone's got to redesign all of that work. And so I think in the first phase, you saw a lot of automation, you know, kind of skim off the top of it. If it could be humanless, it became humanless or it's becoming humanless. But I think that what we're left with is the tougher nut to crack, which is the co-mingling of people and machines, yeah. you know, yeah. and this idea of, you know, people having digital counterparts. And my understanding as a, as a worker of what was done before I came here, what happened once I put my hands on the wheel, what happened when I took my hands off the wheel, and then where am I when I put them back on the wheel again? Like this commingling idea and the redesign of that type of human machine work is the tough work that I think is, uh, is still ahead of us. So to bring it all the way back, I would say, you know, 
I've been talking about the employee experience for 10 years or more. Sure. I think our first sure. white paper could have been, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> it's not a, it's not like a new idea, yeah. but I think that what is a new idea on employee experiences is that we're really talking about experiences that need to accelerate transformation. They need to accelerate new ways of working for people. And we need to get to new work design. That's, you know, that's, that's automated work with people in the middle. So a lot of it's still ahead of us. I can see why you love this book because it it feels to me, you're in the process personally, you of reframing the narrative around employee experience with counterfactuals, with constraints that are new, like the pandemic. So it feels like this resonated with you because you're actually going through the process of of reframing this whole 10 year old topic that we've been talking about. You know, the other, absolutely, it's a, it's a bit of a playbook. Like what, what I would do with a, with a book like this is try to operationalize it, Ray. How can, I, how can I take those ideas, you know, and really turn them into work practices? And here's a good example of that, Val, so you know. You know, the position in the book, you know, around diversity as a necessary idea of innovation and, you know, business decisioning, you know, in our future. Not that it's just you know, diversity and equity, a human right. And of course it is, and it's important in its own right. But, you know, when we can monetize that as well and say, you know, we need those types of diverse teams in order for us to be competitive tomorrow, you know, and we really see the actionable idea of that relative to our value proposition. You know, that's a hand in glove idea. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing this shift that's going on, really. Um, and it's really about these people-centric business models. And, and right. if you think about this, right, you've been talking about flatter models. You talk the need for that, right? As we get to that people-centricity, I mean, you know, that, that's a different framing, right? Totally I mean, it's, different. It's, right, and, and the need to work with man and machine, those things are going to be coming up as like, you know, how, you know, it's like, how do you train your dragon? Well, how do you train your AI bot? <laughs> That's going to be the question that people are going to be asking, right? Like, exactly. How do I train this AI bot? And you know, how do I figure out false positives, false negatives? How do I figure out the exceptions? Why do you break a rule? How come someone doesn't follow a process? That's like, right. Where do these things come into place? That's a very different framing than, hey, I've got 10 directs. <laughs> totally. Plus there's one AI bot. <laughs> so, totally different. And you know, Ray, I, I wonder if you see this too, that, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, the, the most surprising stubborn ideas here in terms of organizations is what I was mentioning before. And that silos, you know, the silo busting, you know, that needs to happen in order to create a connected workplace, you know, it's just key because when you think about it in the future, you know, um, the ecosystem of business, they're all horizontal concepts, right? Right? They're horizontals, ways of working, horizontal, cross-functional, horizontal, et cetera. You know, and, uh, but in order to get there, you know, we've got to let go of the silos that create, you know, obviously leadership clarity, but they really um, don't do anything for us in terms of, you know, creating ways of working that we're going to need to get to going. Yeah, and, and, and a framing point here is the fact that these are horizontal silos. I mean, think about that. You're crossing horizontal silos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the visualization of that is kind of hilarious. It right? is, like, it how, is. How it, so. And to tie yeah. to the conversation, Val, that you were having before, you know, with Ben, which I thought was fascinating. I really did have a good time. To, this is the most fun thing to, I did all day, Ben. <laughs> listening to you guys. 
Um, <laughs> That's what but, I've been doing. <laughs> That's what we yeah, love to say. <laughs> but you know, um, this idea of like uh, skills of the future, Vala, like we don't tend to get too much into skills of the future, but we do a lot of work in organizational capabilities of the future. You know, so we we tend to kind of come down to this needed capabilities level, you know, that become either new work design and the capabilities needed, you know, from people in order to carry on that new work or some of these ideas of, you know, new ways of working that become organizational capabilities, differentiating organizational yeah. capabilities. Yeah, you get it. You know, it's, what's the challenge for me is when I read the World Economic Forum report that says if you have a child in middle school, seven out of 10 are going to have jobs and titles that don't exist yet. Yeah. So in terms of readiness, I mean, I didn't think chief digital evangelist five years ago or 10 years ago. And you didn't when study I think to of, be a chief digital evangelist. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> I wish, uh, I wish I'd go back in time and learn the art of narratives and storytelling and speaking and writing. But, but when I think about the pace of innovation, the velocity, speed and direction, and how that's going to impact the future of work and new functions, new titles, you look back 15 years ago, uh, mobile app developers, none, Uber drivers, uh, social media none. managers, cloud architects, like these fun, I just probably, you, us three could probably riff on a hundred titles that didn't exist 15 years ago and so and the pace of innovation now is breakneck compared to 15 years ago so and i have a child in middle school so how do you how do schools high school college internships businesses ready themselves for this algorithmic economy that ken talked about and this incredible ai that's built into the human capital management software of of uh, that ben talked about and the fact that you know you the CEOs are counting on Mimi to to guide and shape their innovation roadmap. It's just you have to have a beginner's mindset. You have to have resiliency. You have to really you have to be able to unlearn and relearn and change yourself. Like it's you know what got you here is not going to get you where you want to be. And and that's why I think the work that you're doing is so admirable because you're you know removing blind spots that business leaders have in terms of readying themselves for this future that we're a part of. And, and so, and my point, I wanna ask you a question because the pandemic I believe has had even a, a massive impact, negative impact in terms of women leadership Workers, in business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reports from UN show that because of schools closings, large portion of women leaders have decided to be at home and taking care of the family. Only 10% of CXOs are, are women. Uh, can you talk about the importance of sponsorship, uh, putting your political and social capital on the line to help career path, uh, you know, high potential individuals, specifically focusing on diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I think that um, I, I think it's a I think it's a great point. So, um, you know, here's how we come at it. Um, now, let me tell you, you know, um, where it comes into our work. And where it comes in is this anticipation of, you know, what is the workforce of tomorrow? Um, where is that talent going to come from? And how do we need to get all people possible with their toes on the front line to become, you know, the talent that, you know, that we need for tomorrow? There's no doubt about it. I think that Ken might have even said this. I'm not sure, um, touched on this idea of, there isn't a client that we're working with today, um, Val, that isn't in a hunt for an active hunt for talent right now. Yeah. I mean, one of the most difficult times. So to your point, Ray, you know, it took people, women out of the workforce, 
it took a lot of people out of their native industries as they decided that, you know, we can move across industries into organizations and places that we haven't been before, which is a good thing, especially as we start thinking about, you know, the employability of people with good, broad, horizontal skills that can be applied in multiple contexts. But it's left corporations with huge holes from a talent perspective, you know. So now more than ever, we should be the most motivated to bring the best talent, no matter where they come from, to the table, you know, to engage them, to make sure they feel that they belong here, you know, that they can make a contribution here because nobody wants to work any place anymore, Ray, where they don't feel like, you know, their human contribution matters or that the business doesn't have some common set of interests that I have as a worker, whether it's environmental or planet or prosperity, it doesn't matter. You know, I want to work for a place that, you know, feels like, you know, what I care about and what I believe. And uh, so, we, we can't be any more motivated than now, you know, to engage people and, and get them to work and to flatten our structures so that we create opportunity across the board. I just don't know how we could be more motivated than we are today. Very well said. Very well said. Yeah. And geography is no longer a factor. I mean, that's that's the most yeah. important thing. I mean, you can you, the global talent pool is finally enabled, uh, which which wasn't possible before. So so very, very good stuff. Wow. Uh, we are flying on time. I know. That felt like two minutes with me. I, 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 so <laughs> I have to tell you. So, Ray, I want you to promise me when Vala goes on vacation, <laughs> you tap me in. I will he, sit in he, for him. He's already talking with Tesla with their humanoid as a replacement for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a human position. It's a it human is. Position. I think so. I think so. <laughs> Look, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Ray and Val, it was a with, lot of fun. We are here with Mimi Brooks, CEO of Logical Design <laughs> Solutions. You can follow her on Twitter at BrooksLDS. Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll see you next time. See you in the green room. We'll have a bunch of folks back there, I think. We'll see who's left. So I think Ken thank will be in the green room. So Thanks, thank you, Mimi. Thank you. All right. Wow, 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 Vala. Another hour has gone by so quickly. Uh, you know, it's, it's been crazy. What are your thoughts? What's going on? <laughs> so... I am still processing uh, Ken and Ben and Mimi's uh, contribution to the show. You know, it's I find myself often weekends watching the show again and realizing, oh, my God, I missed this salient point. I missed yes. this amazing thing that was said. And we should have doubled down on that conversation. The problem is the 20 minutes for me feels like one minute. Uh, it is the fastest hour of my day, but it also is a reminder I could be doing this for many, many hours a day. It's, it's just amazing to learn and connect. And it's extraordinary when the guests actually have connections already. The fact that Mimi is sharing Ken's book with her organization, I thought was pretty awesome. Anyway. Well, if you're at iHeartRadio or Viacom, please pay attention. We're happy to do this on a full-time basis. <laughs> just give us a call. <laughs> oh, but I love what I do at Salesforce, but this is pretty cool. Uh, okay, next week is episode 248. We have Suki Fuller, analytics storyteller, oh, wow. advisor, awesome VC. Yeah, she's extraordinary. And talking about a great natural storyteller. And it was Brenna Brown who said good stories are data with a soul. That's what Suki's all about. All her stories are full of data yes. with a soul. Oh, so you're going to enjoy Suki. Uh, Dr. Janice Presser, relationship expert, PhD scientist. Yeah, Dr. Janice is always, if you never know where the conversation is going to go with the good doctor, but it's always super insightful and relevant. And Mark Golston, medical doctor, MG100 coach, founding member of Newsweek Expert Forum. So again, three extraordinary people next week, much like uh, Ken, uh, Ben, and Mimi this week. Mark uh, is one of the top ranked 
Mark is one of the top ranked business coaches, strategists out there. I had the pleasure of being on his podcast a few weeks back and uh, returning the favor there. So uh, quick thoughts. I, you know, I'm super excited. There's still a lot going on, a lot of interesting projects, a lot of folks with some wonderful positions. How's it going? Uh, at, this is fun. All right, we're seeing a lot of trans traction. It's awesome. Um, a lot of conversations. Had a chance to speak at keynotes inside organizations of some of the digital giants. Uh, hopefully blew their mind. Uh, but there's some fun stuff. If you're reading the book, $3 trillion market cap opportunities you can build in this thing and $100 billion unicorns. I'm more than happy to show you how to do it, but it's all in here. A lot of learnings from some great clients of ours over the last uh, 10, 11 years. And of course, you know, thanks to everybody who have helped out with the book and the book launch. One last launch, September 9th. We think it is in the Bay Area, maybe September 8th. We're toying between the Hotel Nia and the Rosewood. We'll see what happens. Uh, but if you're, you're out gonna get, you're going to give some of these away at Constellation Research. Uh, I suspect most of the folks attending have already read it twice. I think they mostly <laughs> have it, so I'm not sure. We'll see what we do. I'll leave a pile for folks uh, who are going to be there. Our event's still going on, but our big event is the pitch. We're bringing enterprise tech startups together. Today's the last day to apply uh, seven minute video if you're series a or below three million arr make sure you apply we're pairing you up with 50 to 70 of the top people in terms of technology decision makers in the world they are the constellation academy of judges and of course the event september 13th through 14th it'll be streamed out virtually so awesome. so that's it if it's friday what is it? It's Disrupt TV. So check it out every Friday, 11 a.m. 2 p.m. Eastern. And we're happy to see you here. So thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone. Stick around if you're in the green room.